Welcome to Season 3, Episode 6, Chronicles of UK Salafism, An Insider Perspective. This particular episode shall focus on the year 2015. And I will begin by looking at some international events that commenced at the beginning of the year. On the 3rd of January, over 2,000 people were killed in northeast Nigeria after Boko Haram razed the town of Baga to the ground. We witnessed another major event on the 7th of January, this time in Europe, in France, where the brothers Said and Sharif Kouachi killed 12 people and injured 11 others at the Charlie Hebdo satirical magazine offices, sparking a manhunt. The nature of this attack shocked Europe, and as these brothers were being sought out, there was a lot of soul-searching, again, as to the cause and the source of this extremism. On the 11th of January, more than 40 world leaders convened in Paris to march in a rally of national unity, joined by a further 2 million people, while around the country, 3.7 million joined in demonstrations, and the slogan on that occasion for support was Je suis Charlie. The remaining European countries, UK included, in increased their security around that time, anticipating further attacks um, because they were uncertain as to the number of culprits on this occasion, despite killing the two brothers. Referring to local events now, for that particular month. On the 17th of January, I received an email from a researcher who focused on counter-radicalization. Um, he wrote to me because he'd been looking at some extremist material that was from Salafi Media. And I want to read the email exchange that I had with him over that period of time from the 17th of January to the 31st. The email read as follows. Abdelhaq, just wanted to give you the heads up on the following. After a four-month hiatus, I think we can expect Abu Walid Al-Gharib's Salafi media channel to up the pace again with some new videos. A persistent focus of Salafi media in the run-up to August was trying to refute and undermine the Madkalis. I think we can expect a continuation of this type of content in the weeks ahead for a number of reasons we can discuss at some point soon. Hope all is well with you. Looking forward to your next video. I responded, Thanks for this, Richard. I must say that, unfortunately, such adverse media against Abu Khadija and SP are not surprising due to their McCarthy-like attack on all and sundry, including fellow Salafis that do not subscribe to their views. While Salafi media are not at all Salafi, there won't be many from within the Salafi community rushing to the aid of SP, except from within their ranks. The next video or two are down on paper and hopefully coming out soon, inshallah. Close quote for that particular email. He replied on the 20th of January, simply stating, you're not kidding. Then asked, have there been any attempts to mediate an end to such backbiting? It makes parts of the Salafi community such an easy target for the extremists because they become caricatures of themselves. How unfortunate, close quote. And before giving my response that same day, I want to highlight that Richard is in fact a non-Muslim academic. He's not within the wider Muslim community or even Salafi community at all. Continuing with my response later on that day, I said to him, unfortunately, SP never listen. They are bent on destroying any entity that doesn't agree or adhere to their way of doing things. 
The other unfortunate reality is that Brixton has slipped into a serious malaise where the trustees are no longer concerned about the community. I have long since broken communication with them as a result and have not been a part of the setup since 2012-2013. And when I refer to that time of not being part, I mean um, operationally, strategically and at the helm from a point of proprietorship, I continue to be involved in from a distance. Continuing with that email. I've had a number of requests to return and raise it back to its former status, but I'm not inclined to do this whatsoever. One of the many reasons for why I established Street was to maintain autonomy as well as leadership and vision, which was being stifled by my colleagues with ineptitude and disregard for issues affecting the wider Muslim and non-Muslim communities. Now I'm free to speak unrestricted, which is a huge relief and I no longer have to accept attacks from Takfiris and SP adherents on behalf of the mosque. That said, however, I am forever associated with Brixton, which I'm not ashamed of, and Brixton with me. And notice the trustees are happy with this as their anonymity is maintained at my expense. Sad times indeed. End of quote. The final email that I received from Richard on this particular discussion or thread is as follows. He said on the 30th of January, Abdul Haq, you may find the above audio recording from Abu Khadija interesting, though rather uncomfortable listening. As a lay analyst of Islamic affairs, I do respect Abu Khadija's knowledge, but it is disappointing to see these remarks online. I appreciate some commentators were surprised at the deference Abdurrahman Hassan demonstrated towards Abu Barah in the Khilafah debate, but I also thought his approach was worth a try. My assumption upon first view was that he was merely trying to avoid slogans and emotive speech, observe the adab of debating and focus instead on trying to test Abu Barah on the evidences he uses to legitimise IS as a Khilafah and his interpretation of some of the important concepts relating to it. I do not know much about Abdurrahman Hassan, though I have watched some of his lectures from Camden Dower Centre, but for Abu Khadija to refer to him as a, quote, miskeen fool, close quote, seems excessive. Anyway, I thought Abdurrahman Hassan did well to force Abu Barah to lay out his evidences, which can now be explored further by other people of knowledge. To have unloaded on Abu Barah with emotive speech and condemnation would have been totally counterproductive. End of quote for that particular uh, part of the email. I responded on the 31st of January and said, thanks for your email. If Abu Khadija's audio is his usual slick rants against me or Brixton, I won't be interested in listening to it. To be honest, my focus remains away from listening to AK and his ilk and working with others who require knowledge and resilience against extremism on the one hand and cultism like that of SP on the other. I appreciate that as an academic, you have to concentrate on and review all of these areas. However, as an academic practitioner who is from among this target audience, I rather look beyond the personalised attacks disguised as knowledge-based observations or criticism. Regards, Abdel Haq, close quote. So that was my exchange. Now, I think it was necessary to highlight this discussion because there are outsiders, there are non-Muslim academics, um, and a plethora of them have emerged following 9-11 and examined the Muslim community generally and the Salafi community specifically. On the 23rd of January, Prince Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud 
became the king of Saudi Arabia following the death of his half-brother, King Abdullah. And for those who are unaware, uh, Prince Salman, now King Salman, is the father of Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as he's more commonly known and referred to today. On the 29th of January, flight MH370 was officially declared missing by the Malaysian authorities after disappearing on the 8th of March 2014, the year before. And on the 29th of July, later on of this year, 2015, a part of that plane was found on Reunion Island. Many will recall the distress um, and the discomfort of witnessing the families uncertain as to what had taken place, where the flight had gone, the massive um, hunt uh, around the region for this flight, um, but to no avail until this part of the plane was found on the 29th of July, six months later, with the presumption that all had died um, now that some wreckage had been found. I'd like to go to another side point on the 24th of March 2015, in which I received an email from someone called Jay Martins, and I'm highlighting this for a particular reason, which I'll explain shortly. The email read, My name is Jay Martins, and I work for the Integration Centre in Limburg, Belgium. My, ma my main task in the agency is preventative work on radicalisation. At this time, we are looking at best practices in other countries. I ended up with you after a little personal research. And the reason for highlighting this is as previously in the earlier episodes, I've been referencing the communication with other countries, other organisations, other entities that have recognised the work, not only of my organisation Street, but of Selafis in the field of counter-radicalisation. And I will reiterate what I've said then, which is this is an area, a niche field, that only the Selafis are most suitable for. And it's unfortunate that the internecine fighting that takes place, as I've alluded to by referring to the email exchange with Richard um, just a while ago, short while ago, is what many are focused upon. So there's a micro focus and the macro um, issues are completely ignored except temporarily when an event comes up like a terrorist attack or something like that. Continuing with international events now, on the 5th of March 2015, the Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State, ransacked ancient cities of Nimrod, Hatra and Dhor Sharokin in Iraq. And that grabbed the world's attention because of these heritage sites. And I'm highlighting this at this point now because as we are in June 2020, we're seeing vandalism and toppling of statues closer to home in the UK, across Europe and other countries following the murder of George Floyd and the debate and discussion regarding these historic figures and their legacies has now come to the fore. The likes of Winston Churchill in the UK and King Leopold in Belgium and a plethora of other um, personalities that have legacies that have caused polarisation across societies. Moving to the 7th of March, two days later, Boko Haram killed 54 people, injuring a further 143 in five suicide bombings in Maiduguri um, city, Nigeria. And on the 11th of April, history was made when President Obama and Raul Castro met in Panama. This was the first meeting of 
US and Cuban heads of state since the Cuban revolution. On the 7th of May, David Cameron's Conservative Party won an outright majority at the general elections. And I wrote an article a few days later, the 12th of May, entitled Better the Devil You Know. And I'll only read excerpts of that, which was posted on my website, in which I stated, quote, The May 2015 election win for the Conservatives surprised many, with David Cameron emerging as the undisputed champion in the political arena. The subsequent resignation from three of the leading political parties leaves him as the undisputed political leader following their election defeats. It would not be amiss to liken Cameron, from a political standpoint, to another recent champion, Floyd Mayweather Jr., who defeated Manny Pacquiao to assert his position as the undefeated and undisputed boxing champion of the world. In fact, it now appears that Miliband, Clegg and Farage were actually pretenders to the crown, close quote. On the 11th of May, day before that particular article, I also penned a response to the journalist Andrew Gilligan from The Telegraph. He'd written a piece that was its usual poorly researched journalism and inaccurate. And I'll quote an excerpt so it provides a picture as to why I've made that claim. Quote, Gilligan's claim that Street has links to the Trojan horse scandal is as derisable as it is spurious. And as founder and co-director of Street, I would certainly like to see concrete evidence to support this. If it is Gilligan's method of joining imaginary dots by referring to my co-director, Ilyas Kermani's work in Bradford, it is seriously flawed. And I suggest he rethink his approach before writing and revealing an inherently biased perspective, close quote. Continuing with events in that year, we move to the 29th of May, in which Nigeria swore in a new president, Mohamedou Buhari. And then on the 15th of June, we see an event in the UK, which was the 800th anniversary of the birthplace of modern democracy, with the signing of the Magna Carta by King John in Runnymede, England. On the 17th of June, we witnessed the murder of nine black people inside Emmanuel AME Church, Charleston, South Carolina, by a white supremacist and terrorist, he wasn't labelled a terrorist, Dylan Roof, who we learned was later taken to a burger joint and treated to a meal after his arrest. Contrast that with what happens to black individuals following their arrests. They're either killed or severely wounded and physically abused. And we have hot on our um, tell at the moment, the George Floyd death and the recent deaths that we've heard of in the past week. On the 22nd of July, the oldest Quran fragments were discovered in a collection held by the University of Birmingham, UK, with radiocarbon testing dating it between 568 and 645 Christian, Christian era. Now, this shouldn't have any impact or bearing on the Muslim world. However, we saw many become excited as though this was validation from a Western non-Muslim scientific perspective um, about the veracity and um, authenticity of the Quran. And uh, a debate ensued 
from many saying we did not need this validation. We've already got it in the Quran and we've already got our own historical records to prove that. But this was something that caused some excitement across the Muslim world and particularly in the UK due to the locality being Birmingham. Now, on the 3rd of August, the Quilliam Foundation released a video with the hashtag not another brother and I'm referring to this because it smacked of opportunism and sensationalism and it also showed how out of touch they were and those who supported them you had a video of an individual supposedly in Syria and when you look at the video still it looks like a, a South Asian version of Rambo and I will read from their marketing tool in which they stated, quote, the video depicts a young British man in a war zone, having traveled to join ISIL in Syria. Badly injured, he reads a moving letter from his older brother. In the letter, the older brother apologizes for unintentionally contributing to his radicalization. He reveals the link between extremist ideas and words and the violent actions that some, like his brother, take up. I won't read the rest of this media jargon, but why have I referred to them being out of touch? Where in 2015, the individual is in Syria, and yet he, re he receives an, a handwritten moving letter from his brother. How unlikely is that scenario in the era of social media and mobile phones? It's more likely he would have been reading um, on the social media posts, Facebook, Twitter or the like, instead of receiving a handwritten letter. And the question, um, it begs the question, how did he receive this um, handwritten letter? Who brought it to him or was it sent by um, some other channel of communication? So this was derisable and many scoffed at this and they were right in doing so because it was a desperate attempt by Quilliam to appease its funders and those supporters from the government and Middle England, as, as we term them. At this point, I want to highlight that the world was either finding humour in particular news that was being released, like the preceding video from the Quilliam Foundation the day before, or, as we saw on the 4th of August, that Muppets, Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog announced the end of their relationship on Twitter. Then we saw on the 30th of August, Kanye West announced that he would run for president in 2020. We only have to fast forward to June 2020, at the time of preparing this particular episode, that we see the Muppet show is still going strong in the White House. Moving to the 11th of September, we saw in Saudi Arabia an accident killing 100 people when a crane collapsed in Mecca. I remember attending and visiting Mecca a few days before with two of my daughters to perform the mini pilgrimage and the weather was very hazardous at that time, um, heavy rain and storms on, on that occasion. Moving to the 16th of that month, we saw news headlines that a Danish teenager called Lisa Borsch and her boyfriend had killed her mother after becoming influenced by ISIS and watching videos of beheadings. She was jailed for nine years as a result. On the 24th of September, 
A stampede during Hajj killed 717 pilgrims at Mina in Saudi Arabia. And on the 26th of October, nearly a month later, a 7.5 magnitude earthquake hit northern Pakistan and Afghanistan, killing over 300 people. On that occasion, the communities in the UK um, were galvanised into relief efforts. And I recall um, the Luton community being very, very active and the head of that community, Abdul Qadir Bakhsh, leading on that and, and doing a lot of fundraising around the country and travelling um, to the region at the time. On the 13th of November, France was hit with more terrorist attacks, larger in scale than at the beginning of the year. And three locations were hit, suffering multiple casualties, the Bataclan being the one that received the most. And we saw 129 dead as a result of these attacks. ISIS claimed responsibility um, for those. And this again um, shook not only France, but the rest of Europe. Again, the security alert, which hadn't been um, lowered, was uh, still in place and other measures um, put in place to try and locate and neutralise the perpetrators of this attack. Two days later, France launched airstrikes on ISIS in their stronghold of Raqqa in Syria. And on the 18th of November, the French police raided a terrorist cell, killing two, including the leader of the Paris attacks, Abdelhamid Aboud. I want to read an article that came out as a result of those attacks. And I, I obtained consent from the website wemeantworld.com to reprint this particular article. And I want to read it in its entirety because it's very pertinent to the climate at that time. And it was entitled, Paris, you don't want to read this. Quote, you don't want to read this and I take no pleasure in writing it. And no one really wants to hear it right now, but I believe it needs to be said. I joined the world in grieving for the dead in Paris. I have grieved for the dead from 9-11 forward. The Australians who died in terror attacks on Bali in 2005. Londoners who died in terror attacks in 2005. The French citizens who died in the Charlie Hebdo attacks in January of this year. The Russians whose plane went down over Sinai a week or so ago. I grieve also for those killed in smaller attacks already smuggled deep into the obscurity of our memory. And so we tweet hashtags and phrases in high school French and post gifts to Facebook. We know what to do, we've done this before. But it has to be said, especially looking at the sick repetition of the same story, that despite 14 plus years of a war on terror, terror seems to be with us as much as ever, maybe even more. It is time to rethink what we have done and are doing. Since that day in 2001, the one with those terrible sparkling blue skies in New York, we have spied on the world, Americans at home and foreigners abroad. Yet no one detected anything that stopped the Paris attacks. We gave up much to that spying and got nothing in return. Since 2001, the United States has led nations like Britain, France, Australia and others into wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and Syria with drone attacks on people from the Philippines to Pakistan to all parts of Africa. We have little to nothing to show for all of that. Since 2001, 
the US has expended enormous efforts to kill a handful of men, Bin Laden, Al-Zaqawi, Al-Awlaki, and this weekend, Jihadi John. Others, many without names, were killed outside of media attention or were tortured to death, or are still rotting in the offshore penal colony of Guantanamo, or the dark hell of the salt pit in Afghanistan. And it has not worked. And Paris this weekend, and the next one somewhere else sometime soon, are the proof. We gave up many of our freedoms in America to defeat the terrorists. It did not work. We gave the lives of over 4,000 men and women in Iraq and thousands more in Afghanistan to defeat the terrorists and refused to ask what they died for. We killed tens of thousands or more in those countries. It did not work. We went to war again in Iraq and now in Syria, before in Libya, and only created more failed states and ungoverned spaces that provide havens for terrorists and spilled terror like dropped paint across borders. We harass and discriminate against our own Muslim populations and then stand slack-jawed as they become radicalised and all we do then is blame ISIS for tweeting. As the article reaches its conclusion, it becomes even more emphatic. I will continue. Quote, Note that it is the strategy of Islamic terror to generate a crackdown in France in order to radicalise French Muslims. Hundreds of French citizens have already travelled to Syria to fight with groups including ISIS. As one of the most intelligent commentators on this, Bill Johnson said, terrorism is about killing pawns to affect the king. The attacks in Paris are not about the murder of 150 innocent people. Hell, that many die nearly every day in Iraq and Syria. The true test for France is how they respond to the terror attacks in the long game. That's the king in all of this. America failed this test post 9-11, yet it does not sound like France understands anything more than America. We are going to lead a war which will be pitiless, French President Hollande said outside the Bataclan concert hall, concert hall, scene of the most bloodshed. If I had exactly the right strategy, I'd tell you what it is. And I'd try to tell the people in Washington and Paris and everywhere else. But I don't have the exact thing to do and I doubt they'd listen to me anyway. But I do have this. Stop what we have been doing for the last 14 years. It has not worked. There is nothing at all to suggest it will ever work. Whack-a-mole is a game, not a plan. Leave the Middle East alone. Stop creating more failed states. Stop throwing away our freedoms at home on falsehoods. Stop disenfranchising the Muslims who live with us. Understand the war, such as it is, is against a set of ideas, religious, anti-Western, anti-imperialist. And you cannot bomb an idea. Putting Western soldiers on the ground in the Mideast and Western planes overhead fans the flames. Vengeance does not and cannot extinguish an idea. Start with those things and see, even if you won't give it 14 years to succeed, if things improve. Other than the death toll scaling up further, I cannot imagine we could be doing anything worse. And this was written by Peter Van Buren on the 14th of November 2015. On the 24th of November, Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke was charged with first-degree murder of 17-year-old African-American Laquan McDonald in 2014. 7th of December, we see the presidential candidate Donald Trump proposing the banning of all Muslims from entering the US. And a few days later, on the 12th of December, 
we see that in Saudi Arabia, the first ever women were elected for the municipal council elections. This was followed by statistics that emerged from the US on the 31st of December, in which we see that US law enforcement killed 1,134 young black men that year alone. Again, we are in 2020, and it would be interesting to see what the statistics will be for this particular year, and we're only six months in. And in conclusion of this particular episode, I want to refer to some of the work that I produced and the paperback edition of my book was released due to the success of the hardback and ebook sales. 13 articles were posted on my site during 2015, nine of which were my own. I won't repeat the ones I've already referred to earlier on, but on the 10th of May, I wrote an article, a two-part one, entitled Defining Muslim Identity in Conservative Britain. On the same day, I reproduced excerpts of my MBA in education from 1998, and that was entitled Muslim Education in Britain during the 90s, a synopsis. And then on the 11th of May, I posted a two-part paper, The Roots of Extremism in Islam, and again on the same day, a paper entitled Idealism or Radicalism. On the 2nd of June, my article was entitled The Flying Elephant in the Room, and this addressed the issue of Palestine and the two-state solution that was being touted at that time. On the 15th of June, my article Between a Rock and a Hard Place looked at how Salafis were pitched between the accusations of extremists for being government entities on the one side and by the government on the other side of being non-violent extremists. And the final reference I'll make um, regarding my articles was one written on the 3rd of September that year entitled Jihad Jane, Jihad Brides and Jamie, Idealistic Commonalities, which looked at the trajectories between what happened with Jamie Pauline Ramirez and her co-defendant Jihad Jane and then the more recent phenomena of jihadi brides travelling to Syria um, due to the ISIS propaganda.